Good afternoon. It's a blessing to be here this morning. It's always so encouraging to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to, to be taught and admonished in song as we sung together to remember the sacrifice of our Savior. And now to turn our attention towards God's Word. If your Bibles aren't already open to 2 Peter chapter 1, I ask that you'll open them there. Now we're going to be focusing mainly on verses 5 through 8 here in just a moment. Spiritual growth should be a constant priority and focus of the Christian's life. We may have many goals and aspirations in life as it applies to uh, maybe our, our careers or our hobbies or our education. But for the Christian, there should be no higher priority, no higher goal than to grow spiritually in our relationship with the Lord and in our service to Him. We should constantly be considering how we can improve spiritually, constantly focused on what we can do to to change, what we need to work on in our relationship with the Lord. But when we talk about spiritual growth, I I think we need to ask, how? How does that happen? Maybe that seems like a very simple question, but I think many times in our spiritual lives, we feel like spiritual growth is something that's just going to happen by accident. Uh, that, that it's just going to happen naturally as I live my life. And yet I think we see through the scriptures that, that genuine spiritual growth takes some concerted effort, takes a, some focus, uh, some diligent work. And as we look here in Second Peter, I think Peter gives us somewhat of a roadmap for spiritual growth, an exercise regimen that we need to work on to, to grow in our relationship with God and our, our work from him. I really see verses 5 through 8 here as being stair steps of spiritual growth. Peter telling us the different areas that we need to work on and, and build one on top of the other in our relationship with the Lord. And he gives us a, a, a justification here, a reason why this is important. First of all, I, I want us to notice the context here in verse 3 and 4 when he gets to verse 5. He says, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence to your faith, supply moral excellence, uh, and so forth. For this very reason. Well, what reason, Peter? Why do I need to add these different characteristics and qualities to my life? In verse 3 and 4, he's telling us why. He says in verse 3 that God has given us through the revelation of his Holy Spirit uh, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then he says in verse 4 that that through that, we may become partakers in the divine nature. How amazing of a statement is that? We may become partakers in the divine nature. The highest goal of the Christian life is to reflect God's nature, God's character, to reflect God's image within our life. And Peter says, if you want to do that, I'm going to tell you how. I'm going to tell you the things that you need to work on in order to reflect God's nature and character. And more than that, as he comes to the end of this list in verse 7 and verse 8, he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to be useless. We don't want to be unfruitful. We want to be useful and fruitful in our service to the Lord. Well, if we want to do that, Peter is going to tell us how even further than that, verse 10 and 11, continuing to talk about these characteristics that he's just spoken of, he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. 
For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So he, in, in three different ways here, shows us how important these things that he's going to tell us are. That they're going to help us partake in the divine nature. They're going to help us be useful and fruitful in our service to God. And they are ultimately going to help us to obtain an entrance into the eternal kingdom that we might spend an eternity with God someday. I'd say that's pretty important. And so, what is it that Peter says we need to focus on on 5 through 8? You know, there, there are a lot of different virtue lists throughout the scripture. You can look in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. You can look at Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and so forth. And, and many other passages throughout the scripture uh, that, that give us these lists. But Peter here gives us a, kind of a unique list. And I think one of the unique features here is he, he doesn't just list them off one after another. He says, add to your faith virtue to virtue, add knowledge to knowledge, add self-control. He has a, a progression here. And I don't think what he's showing us is just a, a math equation that you have this plus this plus this plus this equals. Or even a recipe, you know, add a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He very clearly and intentionally tries to, to build these one on top of another. And so why, why is it that he has kind of this linear structure to this virtue list? I think as we look at each of these, we'll, we'll see how they build on one another. That faith is truly the foundation of our spiritual life. And that love is the culmination of our reflection of God's divine nature. And that doesn't mean that what Peter is saying here is that you need to master faith. And once you've figured out faith and you've gotten exactly right, then you can move on to focus on virtue. Uh, you notice in verse 8, he says, these qualities are yours and are increasing. So we're always going to be growing in each and every aspect of this. But I do think that we see a, a progressive structure to this. And I hope that will be helpful as we look at these together. And so, how can we grow spiritually? What is this roadmap that he gives us, these stair steps of spiritual growth? Well, he starts out with faith. Faith itself is, is not really uh, a step here. It's the foundation. It's what everything else is added upon. If we don't have faith in God, we are not going to seek to develop the divine nature within our lives. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We can't even begin to approach God's character in our life if we don't have a faith, a conviction, who he is, and what he has promised to do for us. The Bible emphasizes faith time and time and time again. John chapter 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Many times the entire Christian life is, is summarized by the word belief or by the word faith. Faith sometimes is, is a word that is used to de describe the entirety of Christian doctrine and, and uh, teaching. And so faith is foundational here. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 told that the righteous man shall live by faith. And Paul goes on throughout Romans chapter 3 and chapter 5 to show that justification is through faith. So faith uh, is that foundation. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. 
So time and time again, the Bible emphasizes faith. I'm afraid sometimes, because we react to faith only, we end up de-emphasizing the importance and, and foundational nature of faith itself because we want to move on and say, well, yeah, but it's, it's not just that. Well, the Bible very clearly emphasizes faith at, at times without even touching on those other things. And we need not to be ashamed to, to emphasize the, the importance and the foundational nature of faith to salvation, to our relationship with God. But when we think about faith, we need to realize that, yes, in one sense we're talking about belief. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. So we must uh, intellectually believe that God exists, that he is almighty, that he is the all-wise creator. We must believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, uh, that he is the Son of God, the Christ. But it's more than just a simple belief. Faith, as is described throughout the scripture, is more than just an intellectual uh, assent to some proposition. Faith is also a trust. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That God is going to keep his promises. That God is going to save us in the way that he uh, designated that he would. That God is in control. And so without that belief and that trust in God and who he is and what he has promised to do for us, we cannot begin to pursue his character within our life. Without that faith, we are are not going to put forth the diligence to seek him and his character uh, if we don't first have this conviction. But Peter says that while it starts there, that's the foundation, it can't end there. Uh, We need uh, a true biblical living faith is going to add to itself. It's going to grow and build upon itself. James chapter 2 and verse 14. You remember James asked this rhetorical question. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And the answer implied here is, is no. That faith cannot save him because he goes on to describe this further in verse 17. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. A faith that doesn't go on to grow and to live and to build upon itself is no faith at all. It is a corpse, a lifeless and empty shell. In verse 19 and 20, he even goes on to say, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The demons have an intellectual understanding that God exists. They have a belief there. They even have an emotional reaction to it. They, they, they shudder. But genuine biblical faith is more than just our intellect. It's more than just our emotions. It is our will submitting to God. That is a living and biblical faith. And that type of faith is going to grow. It's going to add and build upon itself. It is not going to be useless and unfruitful. It is going to be useful and fruitful in its service to the Lord. And so Peter tells us that to our faith we need to add virtue. What is he talking about here? Uh, The New American Standard says moral excellence. This is the word arete. Michael Green in his commentary defines it. He says this is used to denote the proper fulfillment of anything. The excellence or arte of a knife is to cut. The 
excellence of a horse is to run. So what he says, this word literally means to excel in one's purpose. The purpose of a knife is to cut. If it has arete, if it has virtue, it's going to be effective in doing that. So when we come to man, what is man's purpose? Man's purpose is to reflect the divine nature. Man's purpose is to reflect God's moral character. And so virtue, moral excellence, is ultimately reflecting God's nature within our lives. Now, why would Peter pick this out as the first thing to add to our faith? You know, this is almost kind of a catch-all term. Uh, we, we might even call this a virtue list here. And yet, what I think he's saying is that to our faith, the first thing that we need to add is a desire to excel in our service of the Lord. A desire to excel morally in reflecting his character. If I were to ask you how strong of a Christian you wanted to be, what would your answer be? I, I think we would all say, well, I want to be a strong Christian. You know, None of us would come out of the waters of baptism and say, you know, I'm just so excited to be a mediocre Christian. I, I, I'm, I'm just really wanting to be a half-hearted Christian. You know, lukewarm is kind of the word that I'm going for here. Nobody would say that. And yet, is that the way that we live our lives? That, you know, well, well being a strong Christian, be, being an active and diligent servant of the Lord, that, that's going to take some time, that's going to take some effort, and that's going to take some sacrifice. And I'm, I'm really just kind of I'm happy being here where I don't have to sacrifice that much. Well, Peter tells us that to our faith, we first of all need to add virtue, a, a drive to excel spiritually in reflecting God's character, being the strongest servant for the Lord that we can be. But I, I think that applies first and foremost to our individual life, but I think that also applies to us in our service to the Lord collectively as well, that we need to have a, a drive for excellence in our service to God, not giving him anything half-hearted or halfway, but that we are doing our, our absolute best that we can to do his work effectively, to give him the glory that he deserves. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, describes the Christian life as a race. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. What's, what's the attitude or mindset of an Olympic athlete? When, when, when the, the gun is, is shot and the race begins, do you, do you see any of those Olympic athletes just kind of trotting along and saying, you know, it doesn't matter what place I come in. I, I may come in first. I may come in last. I, I'm, I'm just happy to be here. You know, I think most Olympic teams would probably kick that person off and get somebody else in who is a little bit more motivated. Paul says the type of attitude that we need to have spiritually is like that runner who is striving to be the first in the race. Now, he, Paul is certainly not saying that spiritually only one of us gets to go to heaven. And, and so we need to kind of be in competition against one another so I, I can be the first. But he's saying that when it comes to how much effort I'm going to put into my spiritual life and my service to the Lord, it needs to be as if there was only room for one. That, that I am going to, uh, with every fiber in my being, be striving to be the best Christian that I can be. Not in competition with others, but more in competition with myself. Like that runner who uh, is always striving for his personal best. And each day as he runs that race again, he is seeking to improve that time. That needs to be me 
spiritually. But I needed to have this arete, this desire to excel spiritually in my service to God. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 reflects this adage. I think we'd all look at the Apostle Paul and say that he was uh, a man who, and I'm sorry, this is Philippians chapter 3, not Philippians chapter 2, um, that he was a man that was very mature in his service to the Lord. He was a very diligent servant. But notice Paul's attitude here in verses 13 and 14. He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I haven't arrived. You know, I, we're never going to get a, to a place in our spiritual life where we just think, well, you know, I, I, I'm really comfortable with where I'm at in my relationship with the Lord now. We, we need to always have this attitude of Paul that, that I'm forgetting what lies behind. Yes, the, the past failures, but also the past successes. I, I'm not living in the past here. I'm, I'm living for the future in my service to the Lord. I'm striving to, to reach forward, to move on to higher ground. And Paul says in verse 15 that as many of us who are mature or perfect should have this attitude. The more mature we are, the more we're going to realize we need to grow and we need to mature. We haven't finished the race until we are standing at the throne of God. And so we need to make sure that in our individual lives and in our attitude as a congregation and in our work for the Lord, we have this attitude of virtue, that we are striving to be the best that we possibly can be in our work for him. But Peter continues, he says, to virtue or moral excellence add knowledge. It's not enough to have a, a, a zeal and a drive in our service to God if that drive is not properly directed by knowledge. Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, Paul testifies about the Jews. He says, testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according with knowledge. And as motivated and as driven as we may be in our service to the Lord, if we're not running the right direction, it's not doing us a whole lot of good. And so we need to make sure that that zeal is being directed by a knowledge of God and the knowledge of his will. The Bible emphasizes time and time again the importance of knowledge, how it defines it. You know, the world has its own definition of knowledge and of wisdom, but, but turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9. Here in Jeremiah, God tells us what our highest endeavor as human beings should be here. He says in verse 23 and 24 of Jeremiah chapter 9, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. God says, your, your highest aspiration in life, the thing that you take the, the most pride in, that you would boast in, should not be your own personal wisdom. It should not be how powerful, how mighty, how rich you are. He says, I'll tell you what's important and where you need to put your focus. Let him who boasts, boast that he knows me. When we're talking about knowing God, we're not just talking about knowing some information about God. 
You know, I, I don't want to know God like I know Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, I, I, I read a book about him once. You know, I, I know some things about him. I don't want to know God like I know Benjamin Franklin. I want to know God like I know my wife. I think that's the type of knowledge that God is emphasizing to us. That we don't just know some facts about him, but that we become intimately acquainted with, with his likes and his distance, with his character, who he is, and what he desires from our lives. That's the type of knowledge that we're talking about here that should direct our zeal and our drive. And by God's grace, we can obtain that knowledge. First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about how uh, amazing it is that God has revealed his thoughts to us. In verse 11 here, he talks about how no man can know the thoughts of a man except the spirit that is within him. Nobody can read my thoughts and know what I'm thinking about unless I tell them. In the same way, he says, no man can know the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You know, many within the religious world today like to, to try to read God's mind. You know, well, I, you know, I really think that God would approve of this. I, I really think that God would, would like this. Well, we can't do that. I, I can't read God's mind in that sense, and yet, if God reveals his mind to us, I can read his thoughts. In verse 12, he says, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. These words, that God has revealed to us are his thoughts, are his mind. Later on in verse 16, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that, we will, uh, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. No, we can't just kind of read God's mind through our own intuition. But by God's grace, we can read his mind. He has revealed his thoughts to us. We can get to know who he is, what he desires from our life. Brethren, that should blow us away. That I can open up these pages and I can read the very thoughts of the creator of the universe. And I can come to know him. What he is like. What he desires. What he thinks. And I needed to have the same type of drive to, to gain that knowledge as I would if, if my own wife were, were to write me a, a love letter when, when we were dating. You know, I, I wouldn't have, uh, you know, kept that sealed and, and put it on the, the shelf and say, yeah, I'll, I'll get around to reading that sometime. No, I want to know. I want to know what she thinks. I want to be intimately acquainted with what's going on in her mind. I'm not trying to trivialize God's word. Uh, this is not just a love letter. It's an edict from the king. It has authority. And yet, when it comes to how driven I am to, to, to learn the things that he's revealing to me. I, I need to want to be as intimately acquainted with his thoughts as possible. But Peter goes on, he says, to knowledge we need to add self-control. It's not enough to have a, a drive and a zeal to excel in our spiritual life and to even know what direction we need to go. But we need to have the discipline and the self-control to make that a reality within our life. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, we already read how Paul says that we need to run in such a way that we may win in our spiritual life. 
But how? Paul, how do we run in such a way that we may win? In verse 25 through 27, he describes how. It says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Just like that runner, that athlete, who is exercising discipline day in and day out to train his flesh to run that race, Paul says we need to exercise that type of spiritual discipline and self-control within our lives. You know, no athlete just enjoys waking up early in the morning and getting all sweaty and sore and and beating the pavement day after day. Uh, There's not that much enjoyment and that discipline of one's flesh becoming sweaty and exhausted, and yet they push through the pain. And they exercise mind over matter. They train their mind to, to push aside that pain and keep going even when it's difficult because they have their eyes on a goal. Paul said that's the way we need to regard our spiritual lives. We need to exercise a, a spiritual control over our feelings and emotions of our flesh. We need to bring them into subjection. Paul literally when he uses the word discipline in verse 27, it's a word that means to, to beat down. That we bring our flesh into subjection to our spirit. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41, you remember when Jesus was in the garden praying and he asked his disciples to, to watch and pray with him. He comes back and they had fallen asleep. What does Jesus say to them there? Matthew 26 and verse 41, Jesus says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What did Jesus mean by that? You know, I think many times we use that phrase as a commendation. Well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is not commending them here. Jesus is rebuking. Jesus is not saying, well, you have good hearts and good intentions, and so it's okay that you're going to forsake me, and it's okay that you're going to all run away, and none of you are going to stand with me. It's okay. Your your spirit is willing. No, Jesus is saying the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You need to bring your flesh into subjection here. You need that your, your flesh is undisciplined and is untrained. We need to make sure that we are training our flesh from day to day. So that when the hour comes, when our flesh is tested, our spirit is able to to stand and control over those feelings, those emotions that may draw us in other directions. And so we need to exercise this discipline, this self-control that Peter and that Paul are describing to us. But it's not enough that we exercise that self-control at one moment in time either. He says to self-control, we need to add perseverance. This is not a sprint that we are running. This is a marathon. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, again we see this illustration of a race that we are running. After talking about all these different men and women of faith in chapter 11, verse uh, chapter 12 and verse 1, He describes them as as standing in the audience as witnesses as we run our race. 
says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here, this race requires endurance, requires perseverance. If we're going to to take up our cross and follow Jesus, we're going to have to take up that cross daily, Luke says. That's going to be a continual process, a living sacrifice for the Lord. We've got to be prepared for the long haul. Hebrew writer here says that, that if we're going to run this way, race, we can't continue to have these desires of the flesh entangling us and weighing us down, but we need to lay aside every encumbrance. We need to, to lighten our load and prepare for this marathon ahead of us. And when things get hard in verse 2, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Focus not on the temptations and the trials and the difficulties that we're having to go through in this race, but to, Focus on that finish line, just as Jesus did, the joy set before him, helping him to endure the cross. Throughout the scriptures, we see admonitions for endurance, for perseverance. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, we read, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Uh, Here, Paul uses the illustration of a harvest. In due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Think about the farmer for a moment. Why does the farmer go out to the field day in and day out and do all that hard work when at the end of the day he comes in and he doesn't have anything to show for it? Because at the end of the season, there's going to come a harvest. And he knows that if he doesn't do that work in the here and now, if he doesn't continue to work diligently, he will not reap of that harvest. It's the same for us, brethren. Uh, we may work in day and day out and, and feel that we have very little to, to show for it. And yet, we have an eternal weight of glory awaiting us. A harvest, uh, a glorious harvest to look forward to. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, when it talks about God rendering to each according to his deeds, it says that he renders to those who by perseverance or patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. And so here, if we are seeking glory, honor, and immortality, if we're seeking eternal life, we are going to have to exercise some, some patient continuance, some perseverance. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, we read of those in Smyrna. They're told to be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. There is a great joy set before us. But if we want to reach that, we have to be willing to be faithful unto death. Um, Unto physical death, but even more day to day, we need to be willing to take up that cross of spiritual sacrifice for the Lord. But in addition to that, he says that with perseverance, we need to add godliness. Many times when we think of the word godliness, we think of God-likeness. Uh, but that's really what all of these are about. Godliness at its core 
is a word that is more about reverence and devotion to God. It's a Godward way of thinking. Literally, it's eusebii, uh, which comes from two words, one meaning good and the other meaning reverence or, or worship. So good worship, good devotion. Thayer defines it as reverence and respect, piety towards God. Um, Vine says it's piety which characterized by a Godward attitude does that which is well-pleasing to him. Michael Green says a practical awareness of God in every aspect of our life. So what we're talking about here is a Godward way of thinking. That from day to day, we are developing a genuine relationship with God. Because we can believe in God, we can desire to excel uh, in our service to Him, we can know what we need to do and exercise self-control and perseverance, but if we aren't developing a genuine relationship with God, then it's all for naught. And I think that's really what this word is about. Drawing close to God. James 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This word godliness is that which is characterized by a closeness to God. A life characterized by consistent prayer, constant devotion to his will. There in that context of James 4 verse 8 when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He then says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Uh, godliness is, is the exact opposite of double mindedness. It's, it's a single mindedness, a single minded devotion to God and to his will. Not being pulled apart by uh, other masters that we may seek to follow. I think of the words of the song, nearer, still nearer. <laughs> nearer, still nearer, close to thy heart. Draw me, my Savior, so precious thou art. Fold me, O oh, fold me, close to thy breast. Shelter me safe in that haven of rest. We need to make sure that in this process of spiritual growth, we are developing a genuine closeness and nearness to the heart of God. Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Israelites were rebuked for lacking this. He says there in verse 13, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by road. We need to draw near to God, not just outwardly, not just in outward expressions of, of, of reverence and of piety towards God, but a genuine inward drawing near of our heart to God. Uh, I think that's what Peter is referring to here with this idea of, of godliness, devotion, piety or reverence. But our spiritual lives aren't just about a personal relationship with God. Our spiritual lives also are about our relationship with others. The way that we conduct ourselves in our relationship with God needs to show itself in how we treat those around us. And so to this we need to add brotherly kindness, literally love of the brethren, the word Philadelphia. And I think this applies, yes, to our Christian brethren, love of our Christian brethren. More than that, love of our, our brethren of mankind, if you will. 1 John chapter 4, if you'll turn with me there. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. We read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If we're going to reflect the divine nature, we need to reflect God's greatest defining characteristic. God is love. And John tells us that if we do not love, we cannot claim to know God. We cannot claim to be born of God, to be his children. We can't claim to have a relationship with God. Because those who are born of God, who know God, are going to reflect his love. Down in verse 20 and 21, he says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Brother, it is impossible to truly love God and not to love people. Because God loves people. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I need to love the world the way that God loves the world. And it's easy to claim, I love Jesus, because Jesus isn't here. Because Jesus doesn't need me to feed him. Jesus doesn't need me to, to clothe him. Jesus doesn't need me to serve him. I can claim to love Jesus, and in one sense, I, I don't have to, to back that up, because I haven't seen him. But God says that if I do love Jesus, I do need to back it up in the way that I treat other people. Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus says, Insomuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. By this all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is how we show that we love God, is by loving other people. This is how that we show that we are God's people, that we are Jesus' disciples. This is the badge of discipleship. And so we need to strive, not just to focus on my personal relationship with the Lord, but more than that, to focus on how I am treating others. Am I treating others the way that God would seek to treat them? But the culmination here, as Peter comes to an end, is this word agape, love which is often defined as a, as a sacrificial, a giving, a committed love, a love that doesn't say, I like what you do for me, but a love that says, what can I do for you? And I think here, pairing this with brotherly kindness before, whereas brotherly kindness may, in this context, be more of that lateral love, our love for other people. I think love here, agape, uh, may, in this context, be referring to our relationship to the Lord, just as we see the first and second greatest command in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. Jesus commands that we love our neighbor as ourselves, but also that we love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Uh, and on these two, he says, all the law and the prophets are founded. And so if, if we've missed this, we've missed it all. It's interesting that love, in a sense, is the foundation, it's the motivation in other passages, and yet here it is also the culmination of our spiritual life and our reflection of God's character. I want you to turn with me to one more passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we may all be familiar with this chapter on love, but I, I want us to read verses 
verses 1 through 3 and let this sink in for a moment. We read, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Brethren, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you can do. It doesn't matter what you're willing to sacrifice. If you don't have love, God says you're nothing. You're you're nil. It profits you absolutely nothing. And so if we are going to strive to reflect God's character within our life, we need to remember the, the goal here. The goal of our instruction, 1 Timothy 5, is love from pure heart good conscience and a sincere faith. And so our spiritual growth amounts to nothing if we don't see this as our goal. If we don't reach out to have the love of God uh, both in our wholehearted devotion to Him and yes, also in our love for other people. And so, bringing it all back home, as we put our mirrors away, and we consider what these things have to say about my own heart and my own life. What, what areas do I need to grow? What path uh, do, do I need to take to, to more fully reflect God's character in my life? The goal of our creation, of humanity, of what it means to be in the image of God is to reflect His character. And Jesus says, if we want to be useful, if we want to be fruitful, If we want to have an entrance into the eternal kingdom, we need to be growing. We need to be moving forward in our spiritual life. Are you growing? Are you adding these things to your faith? Maybe you haven't started that growing process. Maybe you haven't acted upon your faith in the Lord. Wherever you're at in your spiritual growth today, let's leave here with a a more uh, intense commitment and drive to grow into who God wants us to be and thus to reflect his glory, to reflect his care.